Good morning, church family. Grab your Bibles. Stand for the reading of God's Word. I will not be mentioning Baby Yoda in any of my comments today, contrary to last week. We're on page 809 in the Bibles around the room. We're reading Matthew 4, 1 through 11. When I finish, we're going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're going to say, thanks be to God, because indeed we are thankful to God. All right, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you that Jesus gave us a very clear example of how to resist Satan by using your holy word. We praise you that the Holy Spirit will bring the perfect scripture to mind when we need it. Let's feast on your word, Father, and fill us and be real to us. Be with um, our new pastor and just fill his mouth with words of encouragement and truth. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we are wrapping up our Advent series, and some of you guys might be asking, why are we preaching one more week of Advent when uh, Christmas already passed? And and the, the answer is truly, like, um, Advent isn't just um, what Christ did, the, the, the coming of his birth, but it is, it is what he came to be victorious in, what he came to 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 live a life of perfection and, and die that victory death on the cross. And, and it's like the uh, great theologian uh, Grandpa Chip said, he was a man. So he was a man. So today we're going to look at what the, the man Christ Jesus did in his victory. And, it, and in order to do this, I think we have to, we have to go all the way back to Genesis and see um, at the fall of, of man, at the, the great fall of um, all mankind, when God gave Adam and Eve a garden, gave them one rule to follow, and they failed, and they, they ate, they ate of the fruit of the uh, knowledge of good and evil, and uh, threw the whole world into sin and despair. Um, God lays out this curse to the woman in Genesis 3.15. It'll be on the screen. It says, uh, God says to the woman, I will put enmity between you, talking, oh, sorry, talking to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, 
he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the real question is why start in Genesis if we're supposed to be in Matthew? And, and the truth is that we, we have to see from Genesis that Jesus's temptations and temptation as a whole is not an isolated incident for Jesus. Um, we're going to see in our scripture today that Jesus is our victory because Adam was not. Adam was our coward. So Christ had to come be our victory. And if we jumped right to Matthew, it would be like us watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy and starting at the last movie. And not just starting at the beginning of the last movie, but starting at the end of the movie in the um, scene where Frodo and Sam are fighting Gollum for the ring. And they finally prevail against him and the ring is thrown in there. See, we would understand the victory. We would see that the good triumphed over evil. But yet we would know nothing of the struggle and the betrayal and the hardships, the failures that it took to get to that moment. We would know nothing of the significance of throwing that little ring into the fire. We would know nothing of the significance of the victory and the impending doom that was pacified at that moment. In the curse of man, we see that the seed of the woman will have enmity, will have strife, will have conflict with the seed of the serpent. And we see the whole Bible laid out in this this whole narrative of these two seeds fighting, these two kingdoms fighting, these two lineages fighting. And ultimately, right after the fall of man, a couple chapters in, we see this is why uh, Cain kills his brother Abel. Not as the joke goes, it's because he was Abel. It's, It's because Cain proves himself to be a seed of the serpent. This is why Abraham slaughters the kings to rescue his cousin Lot because it's a a battle of lineages. This is why Moses goes up against Pharaoh. This is why Joshua um, kicks out all the pagan nations out of the promised land. It's It's a battle of two kingdoms. This is why David fought Goliath. In that story, you'll go and read it, that it's not just that David is, or David fights the giant, but the giant's clothed and it says scales. It's supposed to be a representation of the devil himself. This is why the prophet Elijah goes up against the prophets of Baal. This is what all the showdowns were about, is the showdown we see in the wilderness. But this one's the big showdown, the biggest showdown. It's not just Satan's seed and one of the seeds of the woman, but this is the seed, Jesus Christ, going against the devil, Satan himself. In this passage, we are going to go through and see how the first Adam, he was tempted and was defeated, and Satan gained victory over him. But the promise of that passage we read, Genesis 3.15, was that that victory would not stand forever. That the second Adam will come and over, overcome him, overturn the victory, and will lead our captor into captivity. So let's get into the text. Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So in the context we have to read just before this is when Jesus was baptized and we see that beautiful display of the Trinity where the Son gets baptized and the the Spirit descends on him like a dove and the Father, he declares over Jesus that this is his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. And then we see that the Spirit descends and then what does he do? He, 
he drives him to the wilderness to be tempted. And then we're going to see that the, really the, the temptations that Satan is throwing at him is a, a temptation, a, a poking at, a, a um, asking if that declaration of being the son of God is true. Is that really what was said about Jesus? The devil's asking. He's also asking Jesus, are you worthy of such a title? And what does that title even mean? The, t- the title of son of God is basically saying he's co-equal with God, the same substance of God. Is this true about Jesus is what Satan is asking, is what Satan is poking at. So the spirit descends and he goes to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's the, the intent of this whole interaction. And, and what a rough day for Jesus, right? This definitely isn't what I'm asking for when I'm asking to be spirit-led. Because you imagine for a second if, if in our lives we're saying, you know what I need? A little bit more temptation by the devil himself. So we sing, Spirit, lead me where our, the tr- our trust is without failure, you know. Start re- singing oceans, and then God answers and sends us to the, to the devil himself. But, but this, is, this is the intent of the Spirit today. This is the intent of the Spirit coming to Jesus. This is the very mission of Jesus to go and face the devil. In John 1, 3, um, John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And what a better way to start this destroying work and the better way to start Jesus' ministry for, for him to go after the devil himself, to go have this great showdown. Verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Surprise, right? 40 days and 40 nights, he gets hungry. The Bible states this for all the government school children that wouldn't understand what would happen if you go 40 days without food. And in any case, this is the effect. We see this as this is Christ being the professional fighter that he is. He's cutting weight to take on his lesser opponent. He's taking on weakness so he can defeat Satan at a disadvantage. Now, why the 40 days and 40 nights? What's going on with that? Well, if we were to read that in the first century Jewish mindset, a bunch of Old Testament stories would start coming to mind. Uh, we, would, we would remember that the flood lasted for 40 days. We would understand that Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before he was given the law. We would understand that Elijah kind of going after, uh, going after the same kind of concept as Moses also fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. We can see that the spies go and spy out the, the uh, promised land for 40 days. We see that Goliath stands in defiance of God and calls out the people of God for 40 days in the wilderness. And we see that these, the interesting thing that these, the showdowns that I listed um, seem to have a parallel with these 40 days. After the time of testing these 40 days, there seems to be a victory of God's people. And the same is true in our passage. So when we come to this, we see also that Jesus is also, in a sense, reenacting the 40 years that the people of God spent in the wilderness in punishment, being the better Israel, being our better Adam, being the better people of God. So we're just going to walk through these different temptations. There's three of them. Uh, We're going to walk through the temptation of um, the first one of God's providence, not believing in God's providence, uh, not believing in God's presence, and not believing in God's promise. And we're going to take a look at that. We're going to see how our parents failed in these temptations in the garden, how we fell 
in these temptations today, how God's people historically failed in them. And then we're going to see how Jesus is the greater and better Adam, Israel, God's people, the better us that confronts these temptations and wins. So let's get into it. The first temptation of providence, and that's going to be in verses 3 and 4. So, and the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And, and, but he answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus being hungry, the devil seemingly is tempting with bread, but this really isn't about bread. This is a question and he questions, are you the son of God? It's a question of, does Jesus believe in God's providence? And providence is just a huge theological word that says, um, is God in his sovereign rule and reign the provider for all of his people's needs? And the best illustration you can come up with with providence is the one of um, Elsa and Olaf. So, Elsa creates this snowman, and, and the snowman, when, the, the, when summer comes, he would melt and die. But Elsa, being the good God that she is, the good sovereign, she, she displays a, a, a cloud of providence over him. And wherever he goes, she is sustaining him through that coldness, through that storm. And in the same way, Christian, God is that cloud over you, hovering over you, sustaining you wherever you go. But Satan here is attacking that, wondering if, is it actually true? And we see that because in, in Jesus' response, it's, it's, in a, it's in a response to um, the Old Testament. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 8, and the whole thing's going to be on the screen. This whole passage is about um, how Israel in the Old Testament, in the Exodus story, didn't believe that God would provide for them. And so the whole thing says this, and God's reiterating um, the whole story basically to him. The whole commandment I command to you today that you should be careful that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And they, the fathers didn't get them because they didn't actually believe God. They didn't take the promised land. And remember that the whole day that the Lord your God fed you for these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you, make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So that's what the verses Jesus is quoting in the full context of that is, and look at the parallels between the verse in Deuteronomy and Matthew 4. We see uh, parallel words, themes, and phrases. So we have the 40, we have the 40 years in the desert in Deuteronomy, the 40 days of Jesus. We have the wilderness is where this testing is happening. Whether Jesus and Israel are going to keep God's commandments, we have them being hungry, and we have that God can provide bread. This whole passage really is about will God's people trust in the promises of God, in the providence of God? Or are they going to believe what they feel, 
what they see or their current circumstances. And our, and our parents in, in Genesis did the same thing. See, Eve, when presented with the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, her temptation is this fundamental choice of whether she's going to believe that God providentially has given her everything good to eat or is indeed is he holding out on her. See, every other tree in the garden was for their substance, for their provision. But yet, Eve is tempted right here, is God's providence enough? Is what God provided enough or has he held out on us? And we do the same thing. We do not trust God in his providence. We don't trust that he's going to provide for us. We think that he's holding out on us. We do this in tons of ways. We do this financially. We don't think that he's going to provide jobs, money, anything that we need. We don't believe that he's going to provide for us spouses. Don't believe that he's going to provide for us children. Provide for us for relief for different ailments or de depressions or anxieties. Like whatever it is, we don't believe that God can provide it for us. And ultimately, we don't believe if he doesn't provide these things physically, that in his providence, his grace is enough for us. We don't believe that his providence is what makes all things work out together for good. Well, how does Jesus respond to this? He just, he just trusts God. He just says that, no, God provides everything we need in his word. His word is truth. Jesus believes the word. And in this passage, we see in one sense, Jesus is doing what Israel could not do. Israel was in the desert, in the wilderness, grumbling against God, wanting provision, didn't trust God. But Jesus here trusts that, that with God says that it's going to happen. And we see this right here that in Matthew 4, Jesus does this perfectly. Jesus is being the, the greater and better Israel, the greater and better first son of God, as the Old Testament calls over and over again, Israel, God's firstborn. Let's look at that second temptation, the, the temptation of God's presence. And you could say, is, is God with you? Verse 5 through 7. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So apparently the devil has some kind of teleportation powers going on here. And he takes Jesus to this top of the temple and, and restates again, are you the, if you are the son of God, and in other words he's saying, did God really say, echoing back to Genesis? And he's saying, if, if God really said that, then jump. Jump off the temple. And the scary part is here, the devil is quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm 91. And in one real sense, the devil is actually quoting this scripture in context. But for the wrong reasons and motives, yes, but, but it's correct. And a free, quick application for you guys is this. Just because someone quotes scripture doesn't mean they're working for Jesus Christ. So he quotes Psalm 91, and I think it's funny because he quotes 
verses 11 and 12, but he stops short for good reasons because 13 talks about a promise that this one will crush the head of the serpent. So he doesn't want to bring that one up for obvious reasons because it means his demise. But the devil is tempting Jesus to test God. For Jesus to doubt whether God is with him. We know this because of the response he gives. And he says that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And what he's doing again is quoting out of Deuteronomy. That's, and at the end of the verse in Deuteronomy it says that um, you should not put the Lord your God to a test as you tested him at Massa. And so now we got to jump not to Deuteronomy. We've got to jump to Exodus to figure out what the heck happened at Massa. And this is the part of the story in the wilderness where God's people are being provided by what? With manna in the desert. But now they start to grumble and start to complain that they're going to die unless they get water. And in Exodus, they, they literally say, that. they say, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children? And to and to uh, and and our livestock with thirst, and then God provides water for them with this verse here on the uh, screen here, Exodus seventeen seven, and he that is Moses called the name of the place Massa at Mertabah, I think, <clears throat> because of the quarreling of the people, because they tested the Lord, saying, "Is the Lord among us or not?" See the people in. Exodus did not believe that, the, that God was with them. And we can make the connection there that that is the same thing that the devil is asking of Jesus. Is the Lord among you or not? If he is, then throw yourself off the temple. He will save you. How did our parents fall into this in, in Genesis? Well, in the garden, Eve is tempted with God's um, presence not being enough because she wants to be like God. God. The serpent says to her, the fruit won't surely kill you, similar to Jesus. If you jump, you won't die. It'll prove how great you are. And then to Eve, it says that she, the devil says to her, it'll make you wise and you'll be like God. This is where, where when we reject the presence of God, we actually embrace pride. Because when you reject him, when you reject God's presence, something always has to take his place as God. Someone always has to take his presence of worship in your life. Adam and Eve in the garden thought it could be them. What do we do? Well, we reject God and question God is with us in all of our trials in our life. When we want our own autonomy, when we want our own rule and reign over our own lives, when we want other people to be our God, but this is especially true when we compromise on what the Bible says to, to then follow what we think or feel or when we think that we know better than what God has actually said. We reject God is with us when we reject his holy commandments. We reject that he is with us when we let the world tell us what is right and wrong versus the objective word of God versus the authority we think that we can have the authority to proclaim these things when the word of God is so clear. So what does Jesus, how does he respond? He just says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, he just says, whatever God has proclaimed is true. And Jesus then doesn't give in to this temptation because he doesn't need to prove himself to be the son of God. 
He doesn't need any vindication from anyone. And again, here he is being the better Israel in the wilderness, being perfectly humble and trusting that God is with him indeed. Last temptation here, the temptation of promise. I'm going to say it's a temptation of promise with prestige, pleasure, and prominence. All the P's today. All right, verse 8 and 9 and 10. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only, and him only shall you serve. So again, the devil is using some kind of power. He has some kind of power and shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory, which is, which is important here. And he says, just worship me a little. Just, just take a bite, just a pinch of worship and everything will be yours. What this is, is this is an attack on Jesus' mission and Jesus' calling. This is an attack on what Jesus actually came to come accomplish. How do I know that? Because at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, Jesus has everything that the devil offers him here. Matthew 28 says, And they saw him, and they worshipped him, talking about Jesus. So Jesus gets the worship that the devil wanted. But some doubted. That's always good news for us because when they saw the resurrected Christ, they still didn't believe. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So this is what we call a, a bookend in the scripture. So in the beginning of Christ's ministry, the devil is tempting him and offers him the nations if he were to worship him. And at the end of this last bookend, we see that Jesus has all the nations and gets the worship. It's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt to say that, um, Christ, if you worship me a little bit, I'm going to give you what you accomplished. I'm going to give you the shortcut way of it. But Christ goes and gets it anyways. And, and how, do I, how do I know this is a promise? This is a promise given by God that Christ will have all the nations. Well, he's promised it in Psalm 2, and it'll be on the screen. So God declares this. I will tell of the decree, also tell of the promise. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's very similar language to Christ's baptism as well. And it goes on to say, ask of me, speaking to Jesus, Ask of me, and I, the Father, will make the nations your inheritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And here we can conclude because of the end of Matthew that Jesus does ask for the nations and does receive the nations. And in, in the end of that, he has them. And he receives the worship that is due his name. How did our parents fail in this? In Genesis it says, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food and then it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise and she took of it of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband and he ate. So she's tempted with this fruit and, and she's tempted and, and she sees the 
prestige of it. She sees the pleasure in it. She sees that it would make her wise. It would give her everything that she's ever wanted and she partakes in it. In a sense, she bows the knee to Satan and completely disrupts God's commandments, completely rejects God in this. Eve says it's going to be good, and she takes partakes. It looks nice, and she thinks she's going to be rewarded for it. And by doing this whole thing, Queen Eve and King Adam, they lose their kingdom in the garden, and they're kicked out. And presumably, Satan takes up the reins of that kingship and becomes the ruler of the world. And we see the whole Bible go into complete world chaos because of it. Until Christ then comes today in the wilderness passage and starts to take back the wilderness. We see that Christ's victory doesn't start at his second advent when he comes, but it actually started at his first. So how do we do this? How do we discard God's promises for prestige and pleasure? Well, it's in any way that we bow the knee to anyone or anything other than the true and living God. Anytime we go against what God says would bring us the most life and pleasure. We must understand that when we disobey God, it's not that we fall into neutral territory of some sort, but we're actually bowing the knee to Satan himself, swearing off God as our enemy. When we break his law, we are swearing allegiance to a, a false usurpant king that wants nothing good for us. There is no neutrality in this life. How does Satan, or how does Jesus then, he rebukes Satan. This is where Jesus actually gets so upset, he actually just tells him to leave. He's not going to play this game any longer. Tells him to leave, and he quotes Deuteronomy again. So three passages from Deuteronomy, Jesus quotes. And in that whole passage, it's just all about idolatry. All about do not go to the pagan nations, gods. Do not Swear off the God of your fathers, but trust in God. Trust in the promises of God. And if you've noticed, every time that we've looked at how our parents have, um, Eve really has, has failed in this, you're going to ask, why are you bringing up Eve a lot? What about Adam? Are you being a sexist? And the answer is no. And the key, the key to that is in Genesis 3, it says that her husband was with her and he ate too. He was standing right there. Though Eve, ha Eve is having this interaction, the passive man, Adam, is standing there. This whole temptation in the wilderness is pointing that Christ is our better and not passive, victorious Adam. Where Adam is tempted in paradise. Paradise. Everything he can have or wish or want is there. And yet he fails by listening to Satan and sins at the tree. But Jesus in the wilderness, hungry, broken, homeless, he gets victorious by engaging with Satan, not being passive. He follows all the rules, and, but he still goes and ends up at a tree. Not to sin, but to become sin for the world. Jesus does everything that Adam should have done with all the advantages that Adam did not have in the perfect garden paradise. So what does this victory have to do with us? And to, to jump into that, I was just going to quote from Matthew Henry because he's going to say it better than I did. 
So, it's all a matter of comfort for the saints. In the temptation of Christ, it appears that our enemy is subtle, spiteful, very daring in his temptations, but appears with all that he is not invincible. That's good news. He's beatable. Though he is a strong man, yet the captain of our salvation is stronger than he. Amen? It is, it is some comfort for us to think that Christ suffered being tempted, for thus it appears that temptations, if not yielded to, are not sins. That's good news. So just because we're tempted does not mean we're sinning. Christ was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Your temptations are not sins. But the next part of the quote here, they are afflictions only. So they suck. And such as be pleased. And we have a high priest who knows by experience what it is to be tempted. Christ understands your temptations. Christ understands your struggles. Not because he's read it in a book, not because he has watched the movie, because he has experienced firsthand the same things. And then that's therefore he is more tenderly touched with feelings with our infirmities in the hour of our temptation. God, we can go to Christ in our temptations because he, he understands. And he goes on, there is much more comfort to think that Christ is conquered, being tempted and conquered for us. Not only that the enemy we grapple with is comfort, conquered, baffled, disarmed enemy, but that we are interested in Christ's victory over him and through him, we are more than conquerors. We see in here because Christ gets his victory, we get his victory as well. And some applications. So church, we have to look at that. Our temptations today only come from three primary places. The, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And how does Christ get these influence of temptations of providence, of his presence and promise? Well, the, the world comes from, just that just means the Unbelieving people in the world and the non-Christian culture around us try to tempt us into sin. The flesh, that, that is your sinful na nature that you struggle with. That means that not all temptations are external and you can't blame Satan for everything. Sometimes our own desires is what drives us to break God's holy commandments. It's still our old self, our false self, wanting us to still give in to the things that we once thought were life-giving but bring death. But Jesus promises us that he takes our old self, our false self, to the cross and crucifies it with him. Today, if you're not a believer, this forgiveness of sins is available to you. The victory of Christ's sin is for you. Today, you can be forgiven of your sin. And I urge you today to repent. That is to reject your sin and to turn to Christ. To not go another day without forgiveness. We can't have it in our minds today that the, the gospel is some kind of suggestion for a weak beggar begging for someone to save. No, the, the gospel is a command, a command from a victorious king that says, come and I will take away all your sin away. Come and be burdened no, no longer. Come and live into my victory. And yes, Jesus is, or, and yes, the devil is still a, point of our temptation still where they come from and him and his and his little minions are at work in the world 
Seemingly, yes, they are lessened by Christ's death and resurrection and, and victory in this wilderness passage. But as Martin Luther says, still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. He's still alive and well and would love nothing more than to trap Christians into sin. And, but the good news is that the Son of God did appear to destroy the works of the devil. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is true. And the crazy thing is, is in Paul in Romans, he says that, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, speaking of the church. You get to live into this victory. You get to live into Christ's victory if you believe in him. And that will happen soon. And then we get to see this awesomeness that, that Christ does bind this strong man in the wilderness, defeats Satan, and then he goes on to live a life of victory. He gets right to work. And we, we see that if we jump uh, beyond our passage into verse 17, he, he says, he shows up preaching. He start, starts saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In a sense, the, the kingdom has arrived with the arrival of the king. And Christ is bringing the kingdom of God and he brought it right after this wilderness temptation. We can see that because he starts healing the sick. He starts raising the dead. He's casting out demons and he's telling people that their sins are forgiven. All the works of the kingdom of Satan are being undone. Christ just didn't get the victory. He is our victory, binding the strong man as he defeats Satan. Because of that victory, Christ starts reversing the curse of Genesis. Christ is undoing all of our wrongs. Christ is the better Adam, the better head of the family. And in this passage, it is the beginning of Christ's ministry and he starts his victory march to the cross. And at the cross, Satan's defeat is becoming sure. There's another nail in the coffin for Satan, sin, death, and all of their undoings is solidified. And in Christ's resurrection, he secures the enemy's undoing. And he ascends into heaven where he presently rules and reigns and he's coming again to make this total peace. So throughout this Christmas time, we, we sing the, of this sentiment of peace on earth and goodwill towards man, but none of that can be true unless Christ is on his throne. None of that can be true, and he can't ascend to his throne unless he defeats Satan. None of that is true unless he, he defeats Satan in the temptations. And this is our victory if we believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 11, to wrap it up. After this horror whole ordeal it says the devil left him and behold the angels came and were ministering to him this exhausted jesus and this is an application for us that as we go against temptation as we fall into sin as we are repenting and believing turning from our sin turning to god it's exhausting it's tiring this is the whole christian life in a nutshell and we're tired but better news is we have one better than the angels to minister to us. As Christians today, we have the very presence of God by his Holy Spirit to help us overcome temptations and to minister to us when we fail to them to point us back to Christ. As Christians, we do one big thing, and that's lean on to the Spirit that the victory of Christ may be applied to us because Christ's victory is our victory. Let's pray. God, we just ask that you would Take us feeble-minded, weak sinners, and that you would apply Christ's victory to us.
help us out throughout the week, though. We are tempted. Temptation is not sin, but when we do sin, we have a great high priest who is on our behalf praying for us. And in your name we pray, amen.